You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Ayn Rand's second appearance on The Tonight Show, recorded October 26th, 1967. Carson footage supplied courtesy of Carson Entertainment Group. My next guest was with us about two months ago, and her appearance at that time aroused a, a great interest among our viewers. She is well-known all over the world. Her lectures uh, uh, at universities, colleges throughout the country are always standing room only. She's one of the most widely discussed and, uh, and debated philosophers in the intellectual scene today. Would you welcome, please, Miss Ayn Rand. It's a pleasure to have you back with us this evening. I'm delighted. I feel like coming back home. Do you? Good. I'm, Already. I'm glad you're comfortable. I'm always interested when someone appears on this show, especially where they have uh, very positive views and absolute views on things, what kind of reaction you get uh, from the viewers. Are they either vitriolic or they agree 100% or are they completely reverse? Or... Well, it's an honor to you, really. Yeah. I think it's a tribute to you. More than me, I received an incredible amount of mail on this show, more than I've ever received on any one appearance. They were predominantly supporting. They were uh, agreeing with me. There were very few nasty ones, and those I usually don't read very carefully. They go into <laughs> special file of that kind. But they were enthusiastic about the way you handled the interview. Well, and for that, I myself am very grateful. Well, I don't believe in bringing somebody on a program who has uh, certain views and then either debating or trying to, you know, bait you into something, because that's pretty easy to do, because whether I agree with your views or not is really not the important. The fact is we have some place to at least, at least say them without uh, arguing well, back and forth. I, I'm always glad to discuss ideas, but not to debate them. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, subjects in your book, which is I have here called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, and you... The one chapter in here is called The Roots of War, in which you discuss the causes of war throughout civilization, why, why people seem to have to resort as they are right now, uh, and have been, I guess, since recorded history, uh, to kill each other to solve, their, uh, to solve their problems. Do you think there will come a time in our world where there will not be war as such? I don't know whether it will come in our lifetime, but I know the only way that we achieve peace in the world uh, uh, which we have had indications in the past. The necessary precondition of peace is that man renounce the idea that good, any kind of good, can be achieved by force. So long as man believes that they have the moral right for an alleged noble purpose to force other men for their version of the good, you will not put an end to war and wars will continue. As an illustration of it, observe the very peculiar and very ugly phenomenon of today that all the so-called peace movements want to abolish war. They oppose uh, a fight between two armed adversaries, but they support or condone or advocate dictatorship, which means the use of force against a country's own citizens, that is, against disarmed victims. They condone the use of force against the disarmed for an alleged social purpose. 
So long as you have that phenomenon, you will have war. And most wars have been carried on in the name of a good cause, have they not? Oh, usually, yes. And the aggressor, if you observe history, is always the controlled economy of the time, as against the freer economies. It is always dictatorships that start wars. Observe the last two great examples uh, in this century, World War I, which was started by Varist Russia and monarchist Germany, and then World War II, which was started by an alliance of Soviet Russia with Nazi Germany and their attack on Poland. In both cases, it is the dictatorship who starts the war. And you mentioned, excuse me, you mentioned that the country that has the least to gain is usually the capitalist country. Uh, capitalism has nothing to gain by war because capitalism is the productive economy. Capitalism, which is the only system that does not permit the use of force in social relationships. Capitalism is the system which protects individual rights, and that means that the use of force is barred from a society. This means that people have no right to enforce their idea by initiating the use of physical force. When you say capitalism, that's a word that's used very often. You mean, from, from what I understand in your book, a completely free society with a government providing only protection for individual rights, and the government should have no other interest in enterprise whatsoever otherwise, other than protecting the individual citizen, the police, right. the fire, and those services. That's right, protecting uh, the individual citizen from the initiation of force, whether by criminals at home, aggressors abroad, or settling disputes among citizens by peaceful means, that is, the law court. We do, not have, a, we do not have a true capitalistic society now, do we, in this country? No, we don't. We have a mixed economy, which means a mixture of some freedom and great number of controls. Which way do you think we are drifting? As we're going today, in fact, and drifting is the right word, we are drifting towards totalitarianism, towards a statist, specifically a fascist form of government. But intellectually, statism and collectivism are dead. Philosophically or morally, they have really lost their power about the time of World War II. And therefore, there is hope that the trend, the philosophical trend, which precedes the political trend, will be going the other way. If mankind is to survive, that's the only way it can go, namely towards freedom, individualism, and full laissez-faire capitalism. We'll be right back and discuss the term laissez-faire and how it came about, which uh, is rather interesting. Capitalism, statism, um, liberalism, uh, fascism, all of these isms. When you say statism, what exactly do you mean by statism? Statism means any system which uh, <laughs> believes that the individual has no rights, that all rights belong to society, and that society can dispose of the individual in any way it pleases. Statism means unlimited majority rule, it means collectivism, and in practice it simply means gang rule. Uh, uh, such systems as socialism, communism, fascism, nazism, and the welfare state and any are dictator. all statists. Mm -hmm. Every dictator, of course, is a statist because he does not recognize the individual rights of the citizens. A lot of people say the way to get along with the communist countries is to, is to coexist. Uh, your feeling is that for a communist country to take over, you should have no dealings with the free countries. Uh, true? That's right. 
In other words, you would you would advise for us not to have any diplomatic relations with Russia whatsoever. Uh, okay. And your feeling is that we shouldn't even be a member of the United Nations because countries are in there that are of uh, dictatorships and. Uh, I do not think that the United Nations should exist at all because it is an organization based on an impossible contradiction. Observe, supposed to be dedicated to peace, to protecting the rights of nations, and yet <coughs> Russia, which is the war offender against peace, uh, the greatest violator of individual rights on a larger scale is one of the chapter members. Now, that really amounts to having uh, a crime-fighting committee in a town with the gangsters as part of that committee. So you would say, have no dealings whatsoever. Well, now, when you, some people will take the other side and say, well, now, the U.N. did go into Korea and stop that conflict, and they have shored up uh, certain trouble spots in other parts of the world. It's, the, it's not perfect, but it's the best we have. Uh, uh, it isn't the best we have. Uh, it's the worst we have, because by their discussions, they are sanctioning the kind of aggression which without the United Nations may not take place. Just as, as a current example, look at the uh, Arab-Israel war. Now, I watched that the other night when those conferences were on. Uh, they went on until 2 or 3 in the morning. And one country or the other would get up and say uh, Israel is wrong. One country after another would get up and say uh, the Arab countries are wrong. And they didn't seem to resolve anything. And they won't because they're not concerned with an issue of principle or legality, international law. There is no such uh, principle in the UN. Uh, the Arabs were blatantly, openly, and obviously the aggressors with Soviet Russia's help. They were about to throttle a small industrial country, which is the only civilized country in that part of the world, namely Israel. They were guilty of open aggression. And when that small country wins an amazing victory, what does the UN do? It asks Israel to give it all up. And it has done that in every major international encounter in which Soviet Russia is involved. Now you say if we do not trade or we sever all relations with a communist country, the economy of that country would collapse of its own weight. But wouldn't they trade with other countries? With other <coughs> communist countries yes. or other status countries who have nothing to trade who are perishing themselves. Uh, the Soviet-Nazi uh, pact at the start of World War II was just one of those arrangements where they thought they could trade with each other, and they broke up because they had nothing to offer each other economically. You think, if all, the, you think if all the free countries of the world just said, all right, we will no longer try to coexist with you, we will not uh, trade goods with you, we will have nothing to do with you, that that would be... Uh, that the answer and that all the dictatorships would by that nature collapse within themselves? Within a very short time. But uh, today, there are no free countries in the world, really. There's only semi-free countries. And in order to bring about a firm policy like that, what is necessary is an entirely new philosophy. What is destroying the world today are the kind of philosophies that have been preached, uh, the collectivist, altruist, status philosophy. If the free or even semi-free country uh, took a firm stand against communism and statism. To do that, they would need a new philosophy, a philosophy of reason, 
of individual rights and of freedom. Without that, you, you can't have a, a, a world policy. Now, those have are nothing but destruction. Those are the objections of your principles of objectivism, right? That's right. Uh, now, your views, uh, as you say, we are not a true capitalistic society here. You believe, and you're very uh, consistent in, in your beliefs when you say uh, a true capitalist because you don't believe the government should control uh, any business whatsoever. Uh, no. True? True. I believe that there should be a complete separation of state and economics in the same way and for the same reasons as there is between state and church. We've had centuries of religious wars so long as various churches had the power of the state, the political power behind them. When that connection was broken, and it was broken really in America, observe that various religions can live in peace with one another. And they don't have such a phenomenon as uh, religious wars which destroy uh, millions of people or 30 years religious war. You don't have it any longer because no particular religion has the power to force its views on others, and therefore they can coexist peacefully. What do you say to people when you say if you had a completely free, with no government control, that businesses would become so large, not that largest in itself is a sin, uh, but they would drive the other people out of business and have a controlled economy? Uh, you mean that capitalism would lead to monopolies? This is one of the, what people say. Monopolies, uh, therefore, are bad and uh, have to be broken up. That is uh, one of the greatest fallacies. Uh, which originated really with Karl Marx, because a free, unregulated economy, capitalism, does not lead to monopolies. It makes, in fact, coercive monopolies impossible. Behind every monopoly, there is always an act of government. Monopolies are created by the government's interference into the economy in the form of special privileges, franchise, licenses, uh, special exemptions which give a power to one company that no competitor can enjoy. In fact, under capitalism, no field of production can be close to competition, uh, not in a free trade. All the evils ascribed to monopolies were really not the result of a free economy, but of government intervention in the free economy. It is the government intervention that creates monopoly and maintains their power, as it is doing today. Uh, Ms. Rand, you recently undertook a, a task that most people would kind of shy away from. Uh, you rather took Paul to task on his uh, recent uh, encyclical on the development of peoples. Uh, yes. Exactly to what did you object? Well, it's a very large subject, and I can give you the essentials, but I would strongly suggest that those interested uh, read my statement on the subject in the Objectives, which is my magazine, in the uh, uh, July, August, and no, excuse me, I forgot, August, September, and October issue of the Objectives. And if they want a copy of the magazine, they can obtain it by writing to the Objectives Empire State Building, New York. Uh, I'm prefacing my remarks because it's a very serious subject and I don't want to treat it too briefly. I can give you here only the essentials, the details, the documentation, the quotes you will find in my article. To begin with, uh, this encyclical is a complete, complete condemnation of capitalism. A great many commentators tried to evade the fact, but the Pope unequivocally condemns capitalism as an evil or woeful 
system, and he condemns it on the ground of its essential principles. Profit motive, private ownership, uh, and competition. These are the elements of capitalism which the Pope regards as vicious and which are not the essential elements of any other system. The encyclical does not condemn any other system, only capitalism. Why are those words applied not only uh, by, men, by many people that it is uh, vicious and the, they keep saying it's a profit and it's people money, money all the time? Does that necessarily make it bad because there is competition and profits to be made? That's what makes it good. But don't you see, uh, capitalism is a system which is based on the right of the individual, of man's right to pursue and achieve his values and to keep them if he achieves it. That is what the encyclical is profoundly opposed to. It speaks in the name of the morality of altruism. It announces, in effect, that man has no right to exist for himself. Uh, it demands that the entire civilized world assume the burden of the entire globe and give up all its wealth to the undeveloped countries. Uh, the encyclical calls any wealth above the barest minimum required for survival, uh, it regards it as selfish greed. Uh, all wealth above the barest minimum is allegedly superfluous. And the encyclical never tells us what is the barest minimum necessary for survival and for how long is survival and of what kind. This is never stated. It merely states that man has no right to the product of his own work if anybody around him is in need, which means if anybody around him wants the product of his work, we must all sacrifice ourselves to others. The happier, the more successful, the more productive we are, the more we should sacrifice. It is a call to destroy Western civilization and sacrifice to the rest of the world. And of course, it is ridiculous to talk about it uh, the Pope merely opposed the rich. Uh, he, uh, he called for higher taxes, incidentally, in the civilized countries to help the rest of the world. Well, we know very well that it isn't just the rich who pay taxes. That the burden of taxation in this country falls predominantly on the middle and poor. And these are the people the Pope wants to sacrifice. To whom? Anyone and everyone in the world. This means sacrifice the American standard of living, the miracle of the ages, uh, that kind of abundance that the world had never seen before, and if the encyclical had his way, we'll never see again. And sacrifice it to what? To irrationality, to helplessness, to incompetence, to willful stagnation. You say that charity uh, is not one, you don't think it is the greatest virtue of man, and, and that's the way many people are brought up for some reason, the man's service to man, other man, and uh, charitable, and, and being charitable is, is the greatest virtue, and you take issue with that, do you not? I certainly do. I think charity is a marginal issue. There are certain circumstances under which one would want to help others, and it may be proper, provided it is not at the price of self-sacrifice. What I do not believe is that charity is a moral virtue or a moral duty and that it is not merely, uh, I do not merely regard it as uh, 
neutral. I regard it as positively evil. If a man sacrifices his major values uh, for the sake of another person or for uh, any cause. What does one do with the, with the less fortunate people in the world who cannot produce, or whatever the reason? One leaves them free. If, if it is true that uh, if you, you say they cannot produce, the more reasons to leave freedom to those who can produce, then don't tie up the producers. And those who cannot produce will then have to count on voluntary charity. And the richer the country, the more generous it is, as you can see in this country. We will be right back. Stay where you are. I was asking Miss Brand if she saw the time where uh, this ideology might take place, where, as you say, man uh, lived mostly with reason, and as you say, that's the only hope that man ultimately has, is his mind and the rational reason. His return to the philosophy of reason, which incidentally the encyclical is opposed to most profoundly. It, it's really directed against the freedom of man's mind, against reason. Some people hold that your views, uh, I think sometimes they say that it's, it's rather selfish and it's, rather, it's not based on any uh, emotional uh, relationships between people, that it's all... Uh, going toward just one direction, and that doesn't leave any room for emotional involvement. It depends what kind of emotions. Do you mean that all emotions are necessarily irrational? No. I don't. You see, it simply means that man has to be guided by reason, and if he chooses only rational values, he will not experience irrational emotions. Then his emotions and his mind will be unified. I believe that it's only a fully rational man that can feel profoundly because he has no inner conflict. Would you ever run for political office? Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not? Why not? Because I think particularly today that would be the most self-sacrificial action anyone could undertake. <laughs> you may have a point there. Well, Miss Rand, it's always, uh, it's always most interesting having you on this program. Uh, as I say, uh, whether people you know, agree or not, at least we're discussing a few things. I think we uh, enjoy the most Thank you. Charles, thank you for being with us. Edward, tomorrow night we have... Tony, can you come back? We had a thing set with Tony Matola, and we didn't get to it tonight. Can we set it up again? All right, Mr. Big. Tomorrow night we have George Hamilton, Peggy Cass, Shirley Bassey, Pat McCormick, and authorist Gwen Davis. Good night. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.